Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 14 of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm here with Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, how are you? Well, I'm doing okay, but um, the world around us is not. Uh, and and yeah. that's what I want to start with today, I think. Um, now, this episode is going to be an episode uh, recorded with Professor Lewis Moore of Grand Valley State University about the documentary series, The Last Dance, about Michael Jordan. Uh, and we had that planned for quite a while. We wanted that to come out shortly after the series ended, and we had booked him to talk to us about that. Um, we were really lucky to, to have the, pr the privilege and the pleasure of speaking with him. And so that is indeed what this episode is about. And one of the things we get into in the episode is the issue of Michael Jordan's sort of political dispositions and comments and so forth. And we get into just a little bit about what is currently unfolding in the United States right now. And that's what we wanted to just say a few words about now before going to that episode. Um, we're recording this introduction later than the episode we did with Lou Moore when we didn't really even fully comprehend the extent of what was unfolding. And so what we really want to provide here is fundamentally what is a short statement of fundamental solidarity with the rebellions taking place across the United States against white supremacy and state violence. Um, what I would characterize as incredibly courageous acts of resistance and an entirely justified response to not only the brazen murder of black people by the state, but also a society that has, since its very inception and continuing today, systematically dehumanized and discriminated against black people in nearly every way imaginable. Yeah. What is happening right now is heartbreaking in part, or just the heart, the, the devastation of it is exacerbated because the very act of resistance itself subjects Black Americans to further violence and harm. From an administration that essentially advocates lynching on Twitter, and I, I do not feel I am overstating the case when I say that. No, white, no. That's right. And white supremacist militias who are sowing violence and murder amongst protesters, including what has already appeared to have happened in Detroit of a 19-year-old um, young man last night and exposure to the pandemic itself, right? A pandemic, I might add, that has massively disproportionately affected African-American people, right? Because of the larger system of structural racism and its material impacts, right? And so that is then being further exacerbated here because of this need, right, to push back and to resist the white supremacist state. And that's going to come, no doubt, at even a further cost, which I find to be particularly heartbreaking in this moment. Yeah. You know, and because of that, I would say that we should have zero tolerance in this moment for any calls for civility or admonishments about looting, as if it is possible to produce commensurability between damage to property and violence against human life. I find that repugnant to the extreme. Likewise, I have absolutely no interest, to be quite honest with you, in hearing from corporations like Nike, interested in cynically exploiting death to perform wokeness and consolidate their market share, 
because that to me is what they're doing and other corporations are doing the same. I have no interest in hearing from corporations on the subject. If there was ever a time to be like Mike and plead neutrality, and I mean, we can really question whether there ever was, that time and that plausible deniability are gone. This is a moment to speak clearly about the profound injustices that structure our societies. And we've talked about Canada as well, not just the United States, right? And the conditions that fundamentally dehumanize some people and benefit others disproportionately. Lewis Moore is Associate Professor of History at Grand Valley State University and author of I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood, 1880-1915, and We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality. He is also co-host with Derek White of the terrific Black Athlete Podcast, really a must-listen for um, you know, sports fans who are interested in taking uh, a critical view uh, of sport, precisely the audience that we have here. Um, so folks that are interested in listening to our show, uh, I think we'll definitely have an interest in their show as well. Lou, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. So first thing, we've got to ask you, how has the pandemic been treating you in Grand Rapids, Michigan? Ooh, that's, that's, that's a loaded question. So Isn't we're like three common? months, we're three months into this. So I'd say at first it was the, it was just terrible. Um, trying to, trying to get everything online, as you know, you know, I teach here at, um, Grand Valley state. And so we had about what, seven weeks left. So trying to get all my lectures online for the first time, also deal with my three kids in school and my wife working for home. Um, and so once my school was over, things started to get better. Um, but it's still, it's like, you know, you don't get to see anybody. I haven't seen anybody's outside my family. Uh, you know, it's getting hotter. So wearing a mask is like just terrible. I got glasses, so I'm all fogged up. Um, but on, right. I had that same problem. Oh, it's the worst. And then on the plus side, um, you know, I get a lot more time to, um, play sports with my kids. So all their shots are looking real good. Uh, (laughs) if they ever get to play basketball again against other people, uh, they'll be ready. Awesome. We're glad to hear that. We were doing that. My daughter and I were doing that a lot of basketball at the very beginning, but she just, she burns out on stuff. She's, she's only four uh, and she just kind of burns <laughs> out on stuff. And then we're not doing that anymore. We haven't played basketball in like a month and a half. Right. <laughs> I did that too many nights in a row and I was out. Yeah. Um, no, you can't, you can't push it. No, exactly. That's the thing. No, for, like God, if I, if I push my child to play sports in a relentless way, I, I must say that I am the ultimate hypocrite <laughs> given what we right. talk about on the show. So very fair. All right. Well, what we're here to do today, primarily, although I, I also am kind of reprimanding myself because we brought on a guest who, frankly, we want to speak to you about everything that interests us about sport. And then we've anchored ourselves to a very specific topic of conversation, which is the recent ESPN documentary series that has kind of captivated most sports fans because there's no other sports to watch, which is The Last Dance, um, the series that was supposed to be about the Chicago Bulls' last NBA championship. But it's really, I think, as we all now know, entirely about Michael Jordan uh, and how Michael Jordan wants us to view him in retrospect. So, um, you know, what I want to do in a moment is just get into basically our our thoughts about the series. But before we do that, I also want to let people know the Black Athlete Podcast has done three episodes on The Last Stand. So if you're interested in this topic, if if you listen to us here today and you want to hear more from Lou uh, and Derek White and guests that they had uh, on this topic, 
including a deep dive into Harvey Gantt. Um, you got to check out their pod. So I just want to throw that pitch out there. Uh, but getting back to the topic then, uh, here's my question to start off, Lou. How would you appraise the ultimate impact of this series? Why was it made? And what do you think the effect it will, will it, what effect will it have on sort of the popular historiography of the NBA? Oh, man, that's a great question. So I'll say from my understanding, like, we'll start with the second one, why it was made. I th- they already had the footage, right? So you can't go back and get that footage. So, sure. So I think the NBA had that, you know, that last series that our season 97. We'll put air quotes. You can't see me air quote last season because Michael Jordan <laughs> comes back. 97, 98. Um, and then Jordan had to agree to release it and he waited until this is the funny part until LeBron beats the Warriors. Right. And and I think it's the most (laughs) Michael Jordan thing ever to say, Oh, okay. You think he's great. Let me, let me show you, (laughs) let me do a 10 part doc on me, um, and say it's about my teammates. Um, but (laughs) if you grew up like I'm, I'm in my low forties, I'm 41. Right. So that's my era. So I love just watching everything basketball wise right like okay here's a glimpse of isaiah i wish i had more of the sonics right i wish there was more on the Suns. like they should have done that um so in, in that sense like the nostalgia was perfect and then you top it with it, you're in covid you like you said at the beginning there's literally nothing for us to do it was due out in june probably right after Le- the lakers win right uh the mm-hmm. championship and now all of a sudden it's pushed up to our up till April and May. And it's just like, okay, I got nothing to do. Let me watch this. And then the best part about it, I think there's an ongoing conversation like social media, right? So on that sense, it works. Um, The worst part, we'll get into some other things, but I think there's going to be more spinoffs and they're not going to be the spinoffs that we want, right? Nobody's going to sit around and watch Tom Brady, a 10 part doc on Tom Brady, because that's just not, he doesn't like there's, you know, the highlights of Tom Brady is not the same on Michael Jordan, right? That actually and, sounds and so, like a rare form of torture, to be honest. Right. It's going to be like, what is he going to do? Is throwing, we're going to watch him throwing slants for 10 hours? Like, <laughs> you know, like I'll bet de- I would watch like a season on like him and Randy Moss or something. Right. Like, yeah. But yeah. I'm not watching Tam- Tom Brady and, and his upbringing in, in the Bay Area and then going to Michigan. That's not that's not fun for me. So. But I mean, why I had that awkward pause, I would watch a, a 10 part doc on like Dominique Wilkins or something like that. So there we go. I hear that. Absolutely. So, okay, go so, ahead, Dark So what, so if you were to like sum up the ultimate impact of this series, like be like, we're all in the moment of like COVID and all this is happening. So like lots of people are watching this, but like if five years down the line, will we even like think about this documentary? Oh yeah. I think it, it was, it wasn't the best, right? But it was just because it's so long and because everybody watched it, I think we'll always remember it, right? It's 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 like I don't remember the same like OJ was probably the best one they did and the U was really good too. But you don't I don't remember the same type of conversation because we all had nothing to do but watch that. So it came out at it was imperfect time, but it came out the perfect time for them. So five years from now, people are gonna remember the last dance. On top of, they're going to remember it because this is like the nostalgia, right? This is, we were in a pandemic and we all watched this thing on on Michael Jordan tell us like, you know, it's okay to win if you're, I mean, it's okay to be a jerk as long as you win type deal, right? Mm. And I think we'll always remember that. Yeah, I'm sorry to say, I think you're probably right about that. Uh, And and the truth is, 
I didn't really realize it was coming. I wasn't paying that much attention. Uh, I typically don't have that much time to keep up with, you know, pop culture events as they're transpiring. Um, and so, you know, I watch things after the fact when I know, when I've heard that there's a lot of hype about them and I think it's important to watch or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, because there was literally nothing else going on, the, the cultural impact of this kind of subsumed me to the extent that I found myself, you know, following right along in a way that I didn't right. expect to. And I'm sure I'm not alone. It's exactly what you're saying, right? Like countless people were in that position. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is probably going to stay with us. And, and sadly, that's exactly what Jordan wants. So really like... <laughs> Not only did he get, you know, the satisfaction of re rebutting LeBron, right? But he got to supplant LeBron, too, in this sense. And he becomes, like, even more memorable in that way. Um, if you could change anything about this series, uh, not from an aesthetic, we, we won't get into the aesthetics of it right now, uh, but from a content standpoint, you know, it's <laughs> 10 episodes, 10 hours. There's a lot there. Is there anything you would do differently from that standpoint? Anything you would have brought in that we didn't see? Yeah, it's just, you know what? It's always hard to judge this one because it started out as a Chicago Bulls doc, right? And I thought, like, if they stuck to that plan, it would have been really less problematic because once you open it as a Michael Jordan doc and then you open yourself to, like, we're doing 10 hours, then more things come up. Like, okay, how do you not talk about Craig Hodges, right? Like, how do you how do you not, you know, talk about how great Scottie Pippen Right. Um, and, and I think I, and then I would have like not had Michael Jordan have like final say. Right. Like because having the the subject of the dog have the final say kind of took a little bit off of it. Like this, these should be like critical. And I think being critical means like, look, we got to do Craig Hodges. You know, we have to you know talk a little bit more about his past, like North Carolina days and or maybe even go deeper. My favorite sports docs are are ones that really take time with history. And I don't think this one took time with history. It took time with nostalgia, right? But not time with history. Or if you're a basketball person, right? Um, having more stuff on those teams would have been fine. Like, you know, let us get, like I said, let us get some, you know, some Phoenix Suns. Let us do some Portland Trailblazers. Let's do the Sonics. Like, fill it up with that 10 hours um, instead of like, here's Michael Jordan working out and, and yelling at Scotty Burrell. So you mentioned there that there there was like no mention really of Craig Hodges in the film. Can you tell us about his story and why it might have been omitted? Yeah. So so Hodges is um a three-point champ. Uh he's a he's a really great basketball player that comes from Chicago, goes to Long Beach State. Uh I believe he majors in uh, African American studies, right? And so so I mean he's he's steeped in like kind of this kind of protest tradition and and if you read his 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 uh, autobiography is actually autobiography, especially designed to, um, to classrooms because um, it's short and it's very clear. Um, you know, he talks about this, right? From the days of a, of, a, of a kid in Chicago, right? He understands how race, racism works. And then he goes to college, gets his degree in FM studies or FM studies. Um, early on, he's doing union work with the NBA. Like he's the team rep. Actually, when he's with Milwaukee, um, uh, what in the eighties he gets, he says he gets traded because he's taking teammates to, or trying to get teammates to go to nation of Islam meetings. Right. Uh, so he gets traded to Phoenix and eventually he winds up uh, in the, at the bulls. And he does a couple of things where you look at it and say, this is probably why he's out of the league. And what number one is during the 91 finals, he asked magic and uh, Michael Jordan to boycott the finals. So why would they do that? Rodney King beat. 
right? And so the Rodney King beating happens March 3rd, uh, 1991. We see it the next day and it's this huge thing. And Craig Hodge is like, we should boycott this. Um, and he says on this this doc, um, what shut up and play on Showtime, like looking back, you know, he should have been the, you know, he should have just boycotted anyway. He doesn't. They win the series. Um, I believe they go to the White House and he hands President Bush a letter. And that letter is just really about how America treats, you know, uh, indigenous folks, how America treats, you know, black folks, how America, the problem with the war. So so you, you can see these strikes mounting against them. And then the next year, you have the riots, the South Central riots. And he calls out Michael Jordan, right, for, for really not using his platform to to do anything. And and I think the other things have been, he, he says he talked to Michael Jordan about his shoes. He tried to get Michael Jordan to have a, a Nike factory right, in urban communities, right, to get some of those dollars there. And, you know, after the 92 finals, he's out of the NBA. Here he is. He's the three-point champ. He's a, a key cog in in the in the in those Bulls teams, and all of a sudden he's gone. And I think it's such a tremendous story, and he's, and he's a pretty popular player, that that's something you can include, right? If you're going to include Steve Kerr's dad's death, right, and I think that's pretty important to include, then you can't tell me you can't have Craig Hodges in there. So so that's one of those critical points in this 10-hour doc that you don't spend any time on Craig Hodges. Mm. That's that's a great point. And frankly, I, I didn't even really pick up myself on that contrast to Kerr and the fact that they're giving us, you know, like they'll give us Steve Kerr as this sort of social justice figure, right. but they won't give us Craig Hodges. Yeah, that's really powerful. And And frankly, you know, this opens us up to a conversation that's, you know, first central to the last dance and also central to the moment that is unfolding in front of us right now. Um, because in contrast to um, Craig Hodges, right, what Michael Jordan is famous for having said, and uh, of course, this documentary does spend some time with this, is that Republicans buy sneakers too, right? And that's a line that I've used in teaching over the years. It's, it's the only Michael Jordan quote that ever comes up in my classes um, as, you know, a contrast to um, the sort of activist uh, athletes that have emerged in recent years and only, I think, very recently um, as a widespread kind of social phenomenon. Although, as you're pointing out, like Craig Hodges is there speaking in a moment where the widespread understanding is that athletes were largely apolitical for some 40 years, right? After Harry Edwards, et cetera. And here we have Craig Hodges being exceptionally political, right? And saying right. really powerful things. And that's completely whitewashed from the history books. And it's whitewashed even here in this moment. Um, so the, the things I want to kind of get into now are, one, who was Harvey Gantt briefly? And again, you spent, you spent an entire podcast on really the telling the story of who Harvey Gantt was. So obviously we can't do it full justice here, but I think that most of our listeners probably don't have a great idea who Harvey Gantt was. So I think it's worth just speaking just a little bit about the person that Michael Jordan refused to endorse, right? Because actually, I think as you pointed out before, this was a pretty small ask of Michael Jordan, right? It's not the same. We're not asking him to be Craig Hodges. People were asking for Michael Jordan to do something much smaller but he wasn't willing to do it. So maybe let's get into that and then we can come back around to what's happening right now. Right. So, so Harvey Gantt, this is important to say, because we always had that lie, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too. And it becomes just a line without really being attached to, you know, who Jordan had an opportunity to endorse. And, and I think when we were, we were working on this podcast, we, you know, we had known who Harvey Gantt was, but then we started digging 
little bit more. I'm like, man, this is a very important figure. And it always gets like pushed off as a, as a footnote, right, to the sneaker conversation. But Gant, for your listeners, um, so Gant's born in South Carolina. Uh, grandson of slaves, and he's actually the first black student to go to Clemson. Uh, so he integrates Clemson after he graduates Clemson, eventually winds up in, in, in Charlotte, and he's the city's first black um, architect. Um, and and then what he does is is he actually leaves a firm that he's working with to go work on this project called Soul City. Uh, so Soul City is a is a town created in North Carolina. So he's the lead designer on this. Uh, so Floyd McKissick's the head of this. Uh, it gets a lot of federal money. And essentially what they want is an all black town. Like this is black power personified. Right. And, and, and it's in the middle of North Carolina and it's going to be, you know, beautifully designed with high rises and everything. A uh, long story short, it doesn't quite work out. Um, it's really hard to get folks to move to this part of North Carolina. Um, federal dollars, you know how it is. Politics, Nixon basically takes over and then you have Ford. Um, and then that, you know, all this kind of uh, HUD money starts to, to, to go away. Um, so, so unfortunately, Soul City doesn't work out, but this is, you know, the beginning of Gant's career, uh, mid eighties, he's the mayor of Charlotte. And at one point, and I said this in the, in the, in the podcast, and, and you get the sense if you read magazines, he's like going to be the Michael Jordan of politics. And what I mean by that, here he is a Southern black man who really has this crossover appeal. And if you look at it in Charlotte, he's able to flip like middle-class white Republican neighborhoods uh, for Gantt. Um, so he wins in 83 and then mid eighties, you have a, a, a section that doesn't go Gantt. All of a sudden they're leaning towards Gantt. And then unfortunately, 87, he loses by the narrowest of margins, about a thousand votes. And, and the, the woman who beat him ran on a platform of taxes and traffic's just too much in Charlotte. And it's like, duh, Charlotte's a major city now, right? And partly why it's a major city, because you have folks, um, you have folks like Gantt who, um, give this the face of modernity, right? You have a black mayor allows you to get past um, racism, right? Um, he actually helps bring the Charlotte Hornets there. He loses. And then when he runs for senator, right, he's going against a, a known racist, a segregationist. And Jordan's mom asked him to say something, right? And this is when Jordan says, nah, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too. I think what's so interesting about that doc, I know I'm getting kind of long-winded here, is that he actually admits, like, I think for like, felt like almost 30 years he tried to say, ah, I didn't say that. Uh, but he said, he said it, but he said it in jest. Like, no, you don't say these things in jest. And I think what's interesting about Gant, and Derek and I talked about this on the podcast, is that they didn't ask Gant to do this, right, to get the black vote and get black folks out to vote, right? They're voting 9% Democrat anyway. I think it was like 97% at that point. Cause, and I don't know who voted for Helms there. That's crazy. They're trying to get the <laughs> yeah, white vote out, right? They're trying to get moderate whites out to kind of switch those independent whites, those moderate whites, because Michael Jordan, just like Harvey Gant, appeals to them. And that's the play. And what's so interesting about that is that Traditionally, you get the black athlete out to, to tout, you know, to get the black vote out. This wasn't, I don't think this was the case. Jordan doesn't do it. Gantt loses. Um, there's a lot of what ifs if Gantt wins, right? He's, you know, he's a senator. Does he become like a VP for Clinton, right? How far does he move up this rank? Uh, he would have been the first black senator in the South since Reconstruction. Um, now it's Tim Scott, I believe, of South Carolina. But but that's how important that battle was. And, and Jordan, it's not a big ass, but he whiffed on that. 
Absolutely. And listening to you talk, you know, what I'm struck by is because I, th I think that sometimes like we almost let him off by imagining, um, you know, OK, on the one hand, you have um, this white supremacist politician. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have, OK, like this radical black alternative like a Jesse Jackson. But that's not what I'm hearing at all. When you describe Harvey Gantt, like, it sounds much more to me like a Barack Obama type figure. Is that fair right. to say? Very, very Barack Obama. Somebody sent me, and I don't know if it's the Internet or it's real, but somebody sent me a picture of Barack wearing a Gantt shirt like he was at some point, uh, you know, canvassing for Gantt or something. So I don't know if someone just put it on there or what, but I saw it. Um, it looked like a young Barack, so I can't tell. You know how the internet. I want to turn because it's relevant to something way more serious, um, which is what's transpiring right now. Um, and we're talking here, and I think it probably matters because who knows what's going to unfold in the coming days, right? But we're talking here on a Thursday night, the 28th of May. Um, and a rebellion essentially is breaking out in Minnesota, in Minneapolis and St. Paul um, because of the recent acts of police brutality that we've seen, right? And what I'm talking about are the murders of, uh, in, in Minnesota of George Floyd, the murders of uh, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Sean Reed. Um, of course, the list is on and on because this is a continuum, um, but these are recent events. And understandably, um, these murders of black people by police have um, led to renewed, uh, public expressions, right, of outrage at the conditions of U.S. society today. Um, and so, you know, when Michael Jordan is saying Republicans buy sneakers too, so I won't advocate for a liberal politician against a white supremacist, right? That, um, that doesn't play very well in this particular moment we're living right now. Uh, it, it, the fact that he, in fact, wasn't even willing to revise his position and say, I learned from it, right, in this documentary. In a, he didn't live through this moment. Those comments weren't happening now, of course. But I mean, he was saying those comments long after Black Lives Matter, right? Long after this had become something that was eminently sayable in popular culture. Um, in fact, so sayable that Nike, and this is maybe something to talk about, but like Nike is willing to use Colin Kaepernick, a person, right, a lightning rod for this issue as a spokesperson, because even if their sneakers are burning in the streets because some Republicans are burning them, right? more of those non-Republican voters are going to buy the sneakers and they know that they're going to make more revenue as a consequence of it. Whether or not the sneakers are burning in the streets, Nike's share value is going up because they're standing, I mean, quote unquote, standing with, right? Because to me, it's all commodification from their standpoint. But I mean, it's not a big risk is what I'm trying to say, right? To say something about these issues. And I just want to read a quote, a, a tweet, in fact, from Colin Kaepernick today. He said, when civility leads to death, revolting is the only logical reaction. The cries for peace will rain down, and when they do, they will land on deaf ears, because your violence has brought this resistance. We have the right to fight back. Rest in power, George Floyd. I mean, that's a pretty powerful contrast to Michael Jordan. And you, know, you were talking earlier about Michael Jordan trying to refute the legacy of LeBron James, right? Someone who has spoken much more actively than Jordan did about these kind of issues. I'm just curious about your take on all of this. Oh man, it's, it's, you know, it's just heartbreaking. You know, every incident, you know, we have to go through, we have to see is always, it's always heartbreaking. 
Um, and, and it's one of these things, if you, if you read the newspapers, I, you know, I'm so involved in reading black newspapers. It's one of the consistent things that you see from a black newspaper is, is anti-police brutality. We need, we need help from the police. Um, so that this something, you know, keeps going on in 2020 is, 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 it's not surprising, right? Because this is American history, but it's, but it's always heartbreaking. Now you usually have the black athlete out there. Let's as the roles to cool things down, right? So for example, um, 68 after MLK's uh, assassination, right? The Cleveland Browns have a cool it down, uh, keep it cool, uh, keep it cool campaign, right? And so they go throughout the city, the black, not throughout the city, obviously, but the black sections of, of Cleveland and, and they, they, they cool it down, right? They, they stay calm. Um, Willie Horton famously during the 1967 Detroit rebellion uh, tries to go down 12th Avenue uh, you know, gets on top of his car in his Detroit Tiger uniform, trying to keep, you know, keep the peace, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting is that, you know, you have athletes like Cap, as you just read, saying, look, this is what happens, right? This is not him saying, hey, you know, you know, keep the peace. We can't do this. This is him saying, no, this is this is what's going to happen when you don't deal with these issues, right? Um, you have a uh, Minnesota Vikings player, I believe his name is Ty- Tyrone Carter or Ty Carter, um, going out there, being part of it, not as a, as a as a peacekeeper, not telling people to go home, but to you know to 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 I don't, I don't necessarily say participate in the rebellion, but you know participate in the protest. And I think this is what's so so powerful about athletes; they have this platform. Um, we're also starting to see white athletes, right, um, speak out. I think Carson Wentz or, or somebody from the Eagles might have said something. Um, we've seen in the past a, a Kyle Culver um, saying something. Um, in the past, but this is, I think this moment that we saw with, with in Minnesota was just so horrific um, that it's forcing everybody to, to, to say something. Right. And it, I think it illuminates to Jordan's inaction because what, what kind of world would he have where, where Jordan established in the early nineties that you could do nineties where you could do these things. Instead, you get Republicans by sneakers too. You get, I'm not a role model for Charles Barkley. You get a lot of stuff where, where athletes are trying to, to distance themselves from this public responsibility. And I think now we're in a moment where you can no longer do that. And I think you hit, he hit it perfectly when you talked about Nike, right? Nike's even buying into this. They, they have cap, they have some of those LeBron commercials from a couple of years ago. If you listen to them, they have public, they have public enemy lyrics on them. Um, and some of these public enemy lyrics are about policing in America. Um, and so that's, what's so interesting about this, like as an athlete, um, I think you have a, an expectation from, from some of your sponsors, right. But you definitely, to, to do something, but you definitely have an expectation from, from a lot of your fans. Now, now, not all the fans, not, not your MAGA fans, not your, not your fans. And I think that's the problem, right. That we see with sports and, um, they fans just want to see these athletes score touchdowns or, or slam dunk. They don't want to hear it, right? That shut up and dribble or shut up and play that comes about. So this is a different change. And I think what's good about this, these athletes don't care anymore about this, right? So when you hear this rhetoric uh, that like politics do not belong in sport as a scholar, as a public figure, what do you think about that and how do you respond to like that that meme that like politics and sport those are two separate things they shouldn't ex- coexist no it's 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 
dumb. It's ludicrous, right? Like, think about this. Like, if we even if we just take like Minnesota, for example, like they have a billion dollar publicly funded stadium, right? That the Vikings play in. Um, so so like to to say politics don't you know belong in sports and then say that we yeah we got a billion dollar public funded stadium how do you get that and and then when we start i'm sure you guys know this when we start talking about publicly funded stadiums that money could be better spent somewhere else right it could be and so the the communities that get disproportionately impacted by these stadiums right from 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 when people vote for these issues um is it's you know it's it's crazy to me then 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 to look at and say the politics don't belong because because this is all what sports are, or when we play the national anthem, right? And so, so we've mm. set up the stadium as as a political place, right? The national anthem is very political, right? And then to say these athletes who who do vote, right? Who are who are most of them are citizens, right? To 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 say that somehow they can't have a political voice to me is 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 pathetic, right? And and my thing is this: like, look, you could be whatever you know. Uh, uh, political, whatever, whatever your politics are, that's fine. You can say what you want um, as an athlete, whether you're Republican or Democrat. But just ex- if there's blowback, there's blowback, right? But just allow these people to be citizens and and to say something, right? So if, if Brady mm-hmm. wants to wear his MAGA hat, you know, let Brady wear his MAGA hat, and then then let somebody else counter that with with something else. But but we can't just stifle these guys uh, and and gals, right? We can't the men and women who play sports um, because they're they're citizens. They have something to say, and I think they can contribute. Part of like my teaching of in sociology of sport is like getting people to to recognize that politics is everywhere, obviously, and like we're okay with it when we're talking about a new arena being built so that we can like go and watch sports and drink our Bud Lights. But once somebody speaks out against like the status quo, then that's when politics is not allowed in sport. <laughs> and it's kind of this weird catch 22 or weird paradox that to me doesn't really make much sense. But to bring it back a little bit to um, the last dance, I found in my reading of, or, or my viewership of, of the, the, 10 part series that they really, really played up this like Nike angle. They really played up like this, like Jordan and Nike built together and like, it had nothing to do with politics. And now you're talking about how like Nike's shifted into like um, sort of a political um, presence and like backing certain political um, figures in sport. So I'm just curious to get your take on what the hell like the the playing up the nike angle in the last dance was was kind of all about i just think you know um that um, what's the book michael jordan and global politics right is that or is that it the lefebvre book um yeah does a yeah, really yeah. good job of of this right and just kind of showing how those two powers right like um collide at the same time and, and nike has this very global domination and it's really it's really telling how it's about this u.s company we think it's a u.s company but most of its stuff is done overseas right and 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 jordan becomes the face of it and i think they just wanted to like just give a nice capitalism uh glossing over this you know nice touch to this 10-part doc right just to show how big they contribute but but i think the other thing you bring up is nike's in the shoe game and 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 they understand that it's a different market now and 
and guys like LeBron who have something to say, powerful guys like LeBron who have something to say are going to say it, and they got to be part of that. Um, and I think I think that's just that's just where we're at now. And 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 look, um, how do I say this? Sometimes revolutionary stuff, or sometimes let's say wokeness or whatever you want to call it, can be commodified. We know this, right? And so if you look at the Black Panthers. Look, everyone started to wear black leather jackets, right? And black berets. And I think this is this is sometimes Nike gets in. Now, that wasn't Nike making those jackets, but there's a commodification to this. Um, and I think Nike's part of that. And that's not to say necessarily it's a bad thing, but it's just to say that this is how sometimes how capitalism works, right? You can commodify uh, uh, black outrage. Yeah, you, you went exactly where I wanted to with that um, because uh, we are, you know, we're going to, Promise we're going to get back a little bit more to the nuts and bolts of the last dance, but um, Kaepernick's already come up in this conversation, and this is a this is a thing that I feel like is hard to grapple with a little bit. Uh, and I and I'm and I appreciated how you put it, you know, because it's it's actually not easy to boil it down and and make a kind of clear statement of the ethics within a capitalist context of how to unpack Colin Kaepernick's relationship with Nike, right? Because, um, you know, just to frame wh- where I'm coming from here, and again, I, I, and I feel like generally when I teach this, when I, the way I come to it is a bit from a position of indeterminacy uh, because I have incredible admiration, genuine admiration for what Colin Kaepernick has done, what he has said, uh, and the impact he has had on, you know, U.S. society in the last four years. And, and really nothing can change that. Because I truly feel like he made genuine sacrifices and took incredible risks um, and did not couch his language, which is what I admire most of all, right? So often we have these kind of so political statements that are kind of still tailored so that they play pretty well with most people. But Colin Kaepernick, I feel, told the truth explicitly. Right. And so I have deep admiration for that. But of course, I don't have deep admiration for Nike or anything about Nike or any, any corporation, of course. Um, so not, not just viewing Nike as a corporation in that sense, right? Um, and, and I can't help thinking, because you know this in the same way that Derek and I do, um, when we were young, Nike stood, if you had a political bent, Nike wasn't some kind of woke company, right? Nike stood right. for sweatshops. That was what, right. That's what politically minded people thought of Nike. So this kind of Kaepernick moment is a kind of woke washing of Nike's brand. And it's worked very well. Because uh, like if I talk to my own students, they're shocked often to hear about the history of Nike because they think of Nike as this like really progressive minded company. Um, so in that sense, right, then Colin Kaepernick has been, I mean, has been very clearly appropriated by Nike. But this is right. also an individual who literally lost his livelihood because he was blackballed for saying, telling the truth in a way that needed to be done. So I don't know what to make of all that on some level. What do you do with that? I think you're, you know, I think you're right. Like Nike uses him, right, to, to blunt some of the criticism. And, and Nike understands that you can sell, you can sell cap, right? He's very popular. Look, he was popular before 2016, right? He was going to be, and he had some injuries, some setbacks, right? He was the next big thing. Um, and, 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 and he was on commercials, right? He was doing the beat stuff. He had a Nike contract. Um, and I think what they realized is that you could ball this up. They did the same thing with, with, with LeBron James. You could ball this up and you could sell it just like Reebok can sell 
Allen Iverson counterculture, right? Um, and I think two two companies have been been doing this. They they did the Charles Barkley. I'm not a role model thing. That's a crazy thing to try to sell. And people, it is probably now my students, your students don't know about these commercials, but we grew up, you know, watching Barkley say, "I'm not a role model," and that's the first time you would see athletes doing that. Um, and and I think you're right in the sense that you know Cap has to make a living. And 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 look, he lost. He had a hundred fourteen million dollar contract, if I'm not mistaken he lost all of that and and so that's an out but i think what's happening too and i you know cap doesn't talk a lot but i always think he's a little bit smarter when it comes to this and i think the next phase is that these athletes eventually are going to have to use these companies to do something that's say these companies have to get involved so lebron has deals with samsung and whatever app you know I have to watch that commercial all the time about getting your mind right. I don't know what it is. He wants me right, to download right. some app, right? He has Nike. These comp, these these athletes have to start using these these companies, right? And I think what happens is, and you brought it up earlier when we talk about this this gap in activism, right? It went from being, you know, as an athlete, you were going to fight for your community, right? That's the part of the activism and then it really went i'm going to be part of my company here right yeah. and i think what happens now what we're starting to see and hopefully you know cat can bend nike because he got him to get those betsy ross shoes out or whatever they Absolute. were yes yes yes, right? yes absolutely that you yeah. could bend you could have and this is hard to say because of how dirty this is right you could have a corporation try to help out your community I don't know how that's going to look because that's really hard because corporations aren't built to do that, right? They're they're built and and you know we'll say to loot, right? They're, they're sure. <laughs> this no, is they're loot like they're looting your community, and at some point you're going to have to bend that. Something's going to have to change, and and why can't it be a cap or or LeBron? Um, I would say Magic, but Magic's doing his own thing, right? Magic's about green power, um, and trying to create opportunities, not res- really challenging the system. So it's gonna be, it's hard to see. Can you challenge the system and be part of the system? Um, and maybe that's the next phase. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna steer it right back to the last dance now because there's actually there is a lot I want to get into. Partly because I think you know for those of us who grew up with Michael Jordan, um, none of this is surprising stuff. It's kind of like really taking us back through who he was and reliving it. But for people who are a little bit younger, uh, like our students, for instance, right, <laughs> it's new, right? A lot of it's new. And also, I think it shines a really interesting light on the NBA, for instance, of today, right? Because the NBA of today was born of that era, right? These athletes grew up like we did, watching the Michael Jordans um, of the world and learning from them, right? Um, or, you know, learning from Kobe, like disciples of Michael Jordan, who I think right. really passed that legacy on very or, directly. Or Dominique Wilkins is, I mean, wow. Yes. Yeah, okay, let's throw in Dominique, yeah, sorry. Well, you know what, I want you to, that's something to talk about, because you, I'm happy to do that right now. Um, because yeah. what I want because the thing that I was gonna get into, well, there, there were a number of things, but like one of the things I associate so strongly with Jordan is the absolute hyper-competitiveness of Jordan, right? Like right. there's one, one aspect of this, the, the style and the majesty of, the game and athleticism, which kind of in my mind's eye, I would put more with Dominique, but like, but Jordan is like this relentless desire to instrumentalize his body to destroy everything, right? (laughs) Right? Like winning is absolutely everything. And he will literally go to any end. Was that Dominique too? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think, 
how do we how do I phrase this? You know, Dominique went at you. Uh, there's this great SEC story um, doc on Dominique where he talks about Dominique's high energy. I don't know if he's necessarily like, you know, he's going to wear it on his face. But I think he, he wants to win. You saw that. You've seen that uh, showdown with Larry Bird. The difference is, and I think Jordan, you know, Jordan's I want to win at all costs. It works because you're playing with Scottie Pippen. Right. It mm-hmm. Scottie Pippen, I think. This is what Jordan didn't want to do, and I thought he should have done a better job. Scottie Pippen is an all-time great player, and and perhaps if his 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 back holds up, his knees holds up, he's top ten, right? Like when that what that doc doesn't do, when that doc leaves off, Scottie Pippen is a no doubt one of the best players ever, right? Like and then he lingers on in, in the league a little bit, and I don't think you get the best of Scottie Pippen. And all this is to say. Dominique never had that, right? So you could you could talk about winning this, winning that when you're you know when you're playing with a really great player, like Scotty Pitt. Uh, Scotty Pitt. Dominique's teamed up with Randy Whitman, and as much as I like Spud Webb and his jumping ability, yeah. right, he's not. Let's say if we're looking at the Pistons, right? He's not Isaiah. It's not Dumars, right? Doc Rivers is not this kind of. I don't know if Doc Rivers even gets run on those 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 Detroit teams, right? Like. Where's Doc playing? He's not getting run on those Boston teams. Maybe he gets to play next to Michael Jordan or whatever as, as somebody that Jordan punches or something. Uh, <laughs> this, this is what Dominic is handed, right? And and so it's. I think he has the desire to win, but desire to win really shows up when you have great players. And if we look at Kobe, Kobe had that same, you know, RIP. Kobe had that same desire to win, but when he had no star, they won like thirty four games, right? Like mm. when he was post Shaq, by him pre Gasol. He's on the team with bums winning 34 games. Dominique's taking marginal guys to 57 games. So, like, playing hard and wanting to win, it, it's it's important, but you better have the pieces next to you. Is that is that a good enough excuse for Dominique not winning the championships? Because I was serious about that, too, the whole time. So there you go. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it was. So, okay, so one of the things I'm really hearing in, in that narrative is the Pippin piece. Right? right, because it, you're pointing out like Pippin is totally erased from this narrative, except that he's actually kind of the butt of a lot of Michael right. Jordan's stories. All the here, bad right? Like, yeah, right. I mean, like, what did you make? What is going on there? And, and what about the fact that you know Pip, Pippin has publicly criticized the documentary? Right. Like, I I think you look at this. Like, if I was like, I did a Zoom party at the beginning of this with sometime in April with my friends. Right? I live in, I, I, everyone's back in California. I live out here. We rarely get to see each other. But when we see each other, we just talk trash, right? And it's all the bad things that we ever did, right? Like, no one's like, hey, I really loved how you did this because that's not how friends work, right? That works on that level. But on the level of a 10-part doc, if you're only putting out, like, oh, the migraine headache or hey, he yes. didn't go in for that game and all that kind of stuff, that's not fun, right? Like, that's that's public shaming, um at the highest level and i think that's too bad because pippin was like if you look at him i had to look this up but pippin like pippin was really good even even 91 and i bring up 91 because 91 is when he signs that terrible contract and he's not an all-star but he's still think about this he's not even an all-star and he's being considered for the dream team like this is everybody at that point and he actually gets selected without being an all-star everybody at that point recognizes how great he is 
And I think this doc doesn't do that justice because if you do that, then you have to admit that, yeah, Jordan had help, right? Um, and I wish there was so much more about Pippen and, and his playing style and and just his his really way of being a teammate. He seemed like a great teammate, right? Um, and he worked just as hard. And I think that would have been a better narrative uh, for this generation of young kids. I hope these young kids don't watch this going out and just think you had to talk trash and be a jerk to to all your teammates, right? Um, I hope they 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 kind of play that Pippen. I hope they don't sound sign bad contracts, but I hope they sign play that Pippen role where they're really getting everybody involved. And you saw that. I think they talked about that in the doc. Everybody was a little bit freer while Jordan was gone. Like his leadership wasn't that bad. Yeah, I think like one. I also noticed this like absence of Pippen, but particularly like in the the storyline midway through the series when they were talking about how Pippen was like taking on management. Like I I thought they missed an opportunity to really highlight what Pippen was doing in the moment and like why he was taking on authority, if you will, in, in a similar way. And like maybe hindsight's 2020 here, but like Jordan is now an owner in the in the NBA. Right. So like I I wanted more I wanted to hear more about like what Pippen was going through, why he was paid so little and like what was actually going on um, between like Pippen and Krause and like the management as well. Um, And it seemed like in the documentary that was being portrayed as like Pippen is a little bit like, like whining a little bit. Um, and that was another like moment where it seemed like everyone around Michael Jordan had to make sacrifices, whether it be on the court sacrifices, whether it be emotional sacrifices, or in some cases, whether it be like economic sacrifices. And like that didn't sit well for me as like an anti-capitalist observer of what's going on. So I, I'm interested to get your take on that whole Pippin fiasco and particularly with the, with the contract in, and how it was represented in the show. Right. I think, first of all, Michael Jordan owner lost Campbell Walker, right? Like that's crazy. <laughs> like you do everything. <laughs> He's the only, no stars are coming to play to Charlotte, but anyway, um, I think so Kit Pippin's deal so he signs it as I mentioned before. He hasn't he signs it in ninety one. I always say it's a bad contract because he signed an eight year deal. And and to me, it's one of these things that, you know, his somebody should have told him, you know, not to do it. But I think he signs it he says he signs it for longevity and, and you know, he you know, he's very poor where he comes from, right? And he wants to take care of his family. Um but and he probably signed it thinking in good faith, you know, they'll 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 resign, right? They'll eventually they'll resign. Right. Because his contract's not up when he signs it uh, and they, you know, and they signed it at that point. But when I say he signed an eight year deal and why it's a problem is because let's say two of the key players from his class, he's 87 class are Reggie Miller and Reggie Lewis. So RIP to Reggie Lewis, who dies, dies early. But both of those guys during that season, the 91 season, signed a five year deal. So like Pippen, that's your mark, right? Like you sign a five year deal. They sign a five year deal. Pippen signs that, but he also has a couple more years on his contract and he folds that in. And so like, if you look at it, I know this math is kind of hard, but when I, when I added up the numbers, it was like 
he only got like a million, a little bit more for signing three more years, right? A million dollars more for signing three more years than like a Reggie Miller. So Reggie Miller signed, I, w- I want to say he signs uh, five for 15 and Pippen winds up signing eight for 24, but some money got like folded in and stuff. So it's a really bad deal. But throughout that time, after a couple of years, when it's time to like re-sign and renegotiate, <laughs> Pippen's going after management. Right. And he's using words like slavery. I put it somewhere in my my uh, tweets. I can't find it. But, you know, he's talking about, you know, I'm not a slave. You can't treat me like this. And he's there's these real battles between management and player. And I think if that dot goes there, you could do something different. And and because this is the time where, you know, the, the NBA um, is going through lockouts. Right. They're 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 going through these changes. They have a new CBA. And these all of a sudden, these guys who are like a Larry Johnson who's making like two million a year, all of a sudden he's signing an eighty million dollar contract, right? Glenn Robson's coming out demanding a hundred million dollar contract, and and what you see is that there's this kind of like races attached to this. There's this this I think there's this attitude around the public that these are black guys, they're undeserving this. Look at this, and I think the injustice that this doc does is put this all on Pippen as just a whiner and not kind of this broader kind of movement of these black athletes to get more from their owners. Cause clearly there's money there. They have enough to pay Michael Jordan, $33 million, right? There's money there. Um, that's, I believe that's what he's making his last year. So I wish it would have gone there more um, about this kind of back and forth with management and other athletes trying to get some because because there's a lockout right on the horizon. Same thing with baseball. They don't do you have a. I mean, one of the reasons why, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, one of the reasons why Jordan comes back early is because baseball is on a lockout. That's it. Uh, that's it. Exactly. Is yeah. it a strike or a lockout? I can't. At this point, it's um, oh boy. I always thought a strike yeah, right I because there's a strike. Yeah, right. I think that's right. Right. And so, so then you have these two, you have a couple opportunities to talk, you know, labor, um, one in baseball and labor and race and basketball. And, and, and you, you miss that opportunity. I know it's very long winded, but that's, you know, and that's okay. We don't make docs, right? So we don't get what we want. Um, but if, if, again, if you give me this opportunity, this is what, this is a great way to, to look at it. Cause the NBA in the nineties is more than just like these stars. There, there are some real, um, economic, challenges and labor battles that that makes the modern nba possible yeah no that that wasn't long-winded at all that was actually exactly what we needed in this documentary <laughs> to be quite honest with you uh like yes. the stuff you were saying about pippin's comments about slavery and stuff that's what i needed to see here then my eyes would have popped open right now i would have been like wow i'm learning something really powerful right. about this moment and actually instead of that what i got uh and i'm just i was thinking about this as you were talking i also felt like they did this slippery thing where especially at the beginning, the, the first couple episodes, which seems so long ago now, but in the first couple episodes, they were even seducing me for a moment into thinking that like Jordan was this ally to labor, right? Because they right. were kind of positioning him with Pippen as being critical of management. Right. But, you know, it was a real kind of sleight of hand, right? And I think they did right. the same thing again with, it was like, oh, well, no, he went back to basketball because he wouldn't be complicit in being a scab with baseball, right? But at the same time, that's like they allowed him to ha- kind of have his cake and eat it too. Oh yeah, I'm an ally to labor, but then they didn't really tell us about labor in any meaningful way. And they don't actually connect the dots to the fact, as, as you're, we're all pointing out here, that he became a front office person and then an owner. Right. <laughs> so exactly the opposite of an ally to labor in this context. And that's nowhere to be seen. So we can walk away from this documentary imagining that he was in fact 
this great kind of labor-minded individual. And I think that's a total lie. And in fact, if I look back now and sort of even in retrospect of the series, to think about his attitude towards Krauss, for instance, which right. at first, again, I, I liked the antagonism. I was like, they're pushing back against management. This is awesome. But then later it just was like, this is just more bullying, actually. Right. Like the relentless more, yeah. fat phobia, right? It was just like, not right. from Pippin. I'm not saying that Pippin was the same. I think you've, you've really clearly pointed out how Pippin had a strong case against management and was fighting back in a powerful and meaningful way. But for Jordan, it wasn't that. It was just a function of his general demeanor, right? To right. pick on anyone he felt like he had power over. And, right. and so I'm going to be actually the long-winded one here because I want to kind of um, provide a very lengthy um, prelude to a question by turning to a recent piece by Joel Anderson in Slate, huh. which I thought was a really terrific article. And I'll link to it in the show notes because it, it's fairly succinctly kind of captured everything that sort of bothers me about this whole Michael Jordan thing, right? Because I was talking about the bullying piece and, and you've been alluding to that, the punching teammates, all this stuff, right? That's there in the documentary. And, they, and honestly, it doesn't feel so much like that's the history they want to highlight. It's like they can't tell a 10-part story without Jordan without exposing him as a bully, but they don't want right. to. But like, they can't help it because that's what the footage shows you if you're right. watching any of the footage. Um, so, um, okay, so... Let's see. What Anderson says is um, the Michael Leahy book, When Nothing Else Matters, confirms a lot of what The Last Dance presents, but it also busts a central idea that Jordan and his doc, Jordan's own production company, produced the series, put forward. Jordan's abusive behavior to his teammates and unmatched nursing of grudges were just what it took to win. This theory is most succinctly expressed at the end of the seventh episode, when Jordan seems to tear up as he explains why he was such a hard-driving asshole to his teammates, menacing them both physically and mentally. And just to break out from the quote for a second, that, that was the single most powerful moment for me of the entire series, because that was the moment I felt absolutely confirmed that although everything about this series and about his own kind of writing, his, his own narrative of the, of his, of the history, his own history of himself is basically trying to tell us that winning at all costs is worth it, Right. And yet in that moment, he's exposing how empty and bankrupt it all was. Because he right. sort of looks like he's left with nothing and he can't really hide that. So going back to the quote, when people see this, they're going to say he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant, Jordan says, over a montage of inspiring championship moments in Chicago. Then he turns it back on the skeptic. Jordan says, well, that's you because you never won anything. And then Anderson says, which brings us to the Wizards, a franchise that ranks 25th among 30 NBA teams in all-time winning percentage. Diminished by age, injury, and three years of inactivity, Jordan's old motivational tactics held little sway over his new teammates in D.C. In the past, he could casually destroy old teammates like Dennis Hobson and Scott Burrell because his greatness gave him wide latitude. He was just demanding excellence of others because he demanded it of himself, the line go. But in D.C., Leahy faithfully documented Jordan's ungracious and often abusive treatment of the other players. It was Leahy who reported on the then-scandalous news that Jordan referred to former number one draft pick Kwame Brown, the first player out of high school to be picked so high in the draft, as a fucking flaming homophobic slur during practice. So my question emerging out of all this is, what do you make of Jordan's bullying behavior? And how does that perhaps affect his legacy compared to other greats like LeBron? Because for me, this is what we were talking about earlier. This is, this is about, like, you were saying this, the contrast between what the, the messages around Pippin, like what Pippin represented as a teammate, 
and what Jordan represented. And it disturbs me that we're once again disseminating this idea that to dehumanize other people, to win at all costs, is the point of sports, right? Right. Something's wrong with that to me. Right. And I think as, as sports, we do sports history here. I think what's different about it is that I think we're probably, we, as a generation, we went through that too, right? Like there wasn't a time when I played basketball, I didn't get yelled. I was a great kid, great guy. And my coach just yelled at me every day. And I think there's like growing, you know, now you look back and it's just a lot easier way to motivate somebody, right? Without, you know, yes. yelling at a 16-year-old kid, right? And I think this now, what do we call it? I don't know, what we're millennials or whatever, they're in this generation where where we don't do that. And that's not a, that's not a, it's a good thing, right? I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Most people are like, oh, this is America's going soft. I think the people who are America's going soft, the people who who are like, yeah, we need dodgeball and PE, they're looking at this like, yes, Michael Jordan, it validates them being jerks. I think that what we saw on that that doc is 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 the gener is is sports, right? That's how sports have been portrayed, and we're always for some reason okay with coaches yelling at kids or players we're okay with bobby knight it took a while it took him to literally choke a student to before people say that's ah, a bit much bobby knight uh but for like 30 years before that we're like it's cool right there's a whole espn has a movie on what's his name uh bear bryant being a it's just a tyrant uh, right when he when he's a right. coach uh before he gets to alabama and we celebrate all that and Jordan's part of that. And I think even if you read the social media after that, there's a lot of people who'd like that. Yeah, I'm going to be a jerk. Um, and, and if I get results, I, that's that's the point. The problem is, is that he's, as you said before, he just seems so empty, right? You're a billionaire, you're Michael freaking Jordan, and you're just lonely, right? Um, which is crazy. And that's not how, that's really how life shouldn't work for you, right? You want to, you you know, most of us, our memories are spending time with our buddies and, and he doesn't really have that. His memories are, this is my quest to win, which is cool. Look, big, you know, you won six championships. Cool. Good for you. But it, in, in the long run, it doesn't really mean anything outside of like sports conversations that you won six championships, right? It's it's good for your bragging to, to other NBA players and sports conversations. And that's really it. And I think that's the problem with, so, you know, that, that type of attitude. Um, but I think, you know, hopefully sports are going in a different way. Um, I, hope, I say hopefully, but I don't know, right? Like if you look at youth sports, it's it's getting crazier and crazier and it's getting expensive. I know I'm, I'm probably part of this problem. We're not yelling at each other, but we're still abusing kids physically. Um, I don't abuse my kids, by the way. Uh, but with like overtraining them and stuff like that just to win or just to get a yeah. scholarship. And I think... Jordan's attitude validates that. And I think that's, I'm glad there's, there's been some pushback and I wish there was more uh, because at some point you, you gotta look at this as having fun. And, and as a parent with young kids, like I try, I try to, to balance that, right. Understanding that there are kids out there, everybody trains now, everybody has a YouTube with, look, I know you're going to get burnt out. I'm not going to be a jerk about, about this. Right. And, and, and I think that you don't, if you see that Jordan, how he treated it, it will change you differently how you approach people, right? Because you don't want to be that person who bullies Scott Burrell. Uh, and and Burrell's still getting bullied because we're all making fun of him now, right? Um, 
And I just think that that's the that's the problem with that that Jordan attitude, right? You won your six championships. You're the you know uh, perhaps the greatest player ever. I still say it's Dominique. Um, but in the end, you know, you you treated people cruelly, and that's not what we're supposed to be about. It seemed like in the last dance, the only two people that had fun, if you will, um, in the entire 10 episodes were Phil Jackson and Dennis Rodman. Right. That's so true. Yeah. For, for me, uh, watching it, that like sends messages. Right. No. And well, Dennis is allowed to have fun because you can't control him too. And I think Dennis at that <laughs> point, and this dog doesn't really do a good job of it, uh, but Dennis is just as big as Mike at that point, I think. Like Dennis is, is huge and he could do what he wants to do. And I think Michael is so, Jordan's so invested in winning that you're going to allow that because you can't control that. But he's going to go ahead and get me 16 boards a game. He's going to get me 17 boards a game, right? So he can do that. And I think Phil Jackson's allowed to be Phil Jackson because he's he wins, right? He's He yeah. showed Mike that, you know, Doug Collins is 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 terrible coach, and he still is, right? And I can get you what you want. Dennis is hard because he's on drugs. But Phil is grounded, and he's okay with himself, right? He's lived his life. He's He's got two championships, and then he – he made his way up to the NBA and I think he's, he's a very confident person. And, and I think that shows too. Right. And I, and Mike probably has respect for him. Totally. Like all of this, all this talk about, you know, the bullying nature of Jordan and, and all this sort of the flaws with the series. It makes me also almost want to ask then like, are there any redeeming moments here? for MJ for you coming out of it because I actually did find a couple personally the first was and this was this was before I really kind of had turned on the series when I was being like I, I was actually a bit more open-minded I think especially coming out of those first couple episodes when they were pushing back on management and then we, we saw the series with the Pistons right and the Pistons were actually they were the ones who embodied this particularly instrumental approach to sport, right? Like they were willing to physically right. brutalize their opponents to win, right? So that's I mean, certainly that's Michael Jordan's ethos taking to its extreme. They were, they were more than willing to physically harm any of their opponents if it led to winning. And then they walked out. They refused to shake hands with Jordan, right? Afterwards. And that right. was the moment where Isaiah actually was the one who refused to apologize for what he had done, right? right. And justified it. And then they kind of cut to Jordan, who was sort of shaking his head and saying, that's bullshit, basically. Right. Like we shook hands yeah. with him the year before. And I have to say, I got to hand it to him on that one. I, I, I did feel in that moment, like, what is Isaiah thinking here? Right. Like these people embody like how young children approach sport, not like someone who has some kind of respect for other human beings who are, again, these are their colleagues, essentially, on some level. Right. Like it's a weird distortion yeah. to me. You're part of this larger um, NBA context in which like your real enemy is management. Your real enemy is not Michael Jordan versus Isaiah Thomas. Management is your enemy. You're, you're part of producing the spectacle together. I get that you also want to win and like sport matters to you, but there's absolutely no reason to be, I, I feel like that ruthless towards each other. So and I, and I almost felt that Jordan got that more there, which was kind of disconcerting. Um, and I also felt really kind of heartbroken. This is the moment, like the, the pathos for me, watching him writhing on the floor after winning the, I think it was the fourth title the first without his father. Right. Um, and it was like the first moment where he could kind of let loose. And he was like, just it looked like he was just sobbing on the floor. Um, and I, I almost feel like we've somehow memorialized that as like some, I don't know, like token of like the beauty of winning or something. Right. But like all I saw was this like desperately unhappy man. And it was like really tragic 
watch. I don't know what you've made of that. Yeah, no, I think the the Isaiah, my, my thing with the Isaiah part with the handshake, and we'll get into the the you know crying on the floor is, I was just like, I can't believe they they still care about this thirty years later. Like this right? is, like this is like come like that's got to be the smallest thing, and he's still pissed about that. I'm just like, I honestly don't think people did that in the NBA, but they hold these grudges and it's he's like, it's weird to me that they still held these grudges. Um, but the whole thing about, yeah, him, him crying. Like, I remember that it must've been like, it's probably like a Gatorade commercial where they play that a lot. Right. And it's just, okay. Okay. Yeah. I knew I'd seen the image, but I couldn't remember where, but you're yeah. right. Like when you saw that and you, and now, you know, I knew it was from his dad's death, but then I always thought it was the image we got was him like yanking the ball away from Randy Brown. Right or Randy Brown trying to get on it, and and Jordan's like, no, this is my ball. But we rarely see, um, you know that that image portrayed in that way. It's always like you're right. It's portrayed as like the thrill of victory, right? Um, and this is not it. This is somebody who's lost his his father and and is is missing that moment um, because he needs that that figure, right? And then I think the other part about the we talk about redeeming qualities is is just him and that that uh, officer, right? Where, where here's Jordan really seeking out this officer, some guy, right? He's a police officer, but he's really doing security. And that becomes like his father figure. And I think that's important to see. And I almost think like the way ESPN was working it, it was probably supposed to come out around Father's Day, right? But because of COVID, um, it doesn't. So if, I think if you look at the schedule of things, it was probably, I wouldn't be surprised if that episode was slated for uh, June 21st. Um, mm. but I don't know. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to guess too much, but I know it comes out sometime in June. Um, I don't, I don't know how they were playing it, and, uh, but it would be an interesting if that was played on father's day. So I know that, um, like this was like Michael Jordan's production. He was involved in this whole thing. So like, obviously it's going to be slanted in particular, um, in particular ways, but I'm curious to uh, to get your thoughts on like if you were in charge of producing this last dance 10 series episode what would you do differently uh more dominique no i would i would <laughs> i i think it everybody would have been fine if it was just about those if it was truly a chicago bulls doc right like and just really getting just really showing to transition of of the bulls but also the nba and you do that by doing some lakers some some celtics some 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 hawks some pistons the suns the blazers really doing that um if if that's what they're going for that would have been fine if you're doing a more critical doc like like we said the labor stuff should come out the 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 Craig Hodges stuff should come out. It's just that this doc was a Michael Jordan doc, and so they don't do anything about that. And so it lends itself to, to tons of criticism. Um, and if it's just the Michael Jordan doc, if you just want to celebrate his plays, then just really make it about that. Um, and I think that's what they – but they don't do that, right? They try to touch on all these things. And once you touch on all these things, you, you, you open yourself up for, hey, why don't you – you know, why don't you – look into that oh i see why michael jordan's really controlling this doc um so that's it like i like i i just love the nostalgia but the the, the you know the the academic you know the sports historian in me understands that there's a little bit more to the story absolutely well lou moore 
thank you so much for sharing um, all of your uh, views and this incredible historical context for something that really is lacking the historical context, even though it's 10 episodes that are ostensibly about this history. Uh, I, I've learned far more from talking to you today than I did from those 10 hours. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and for everyone, listen to the Black Athlete Podcast and get loose books. Thanks a lot. Luke. Yeah, buy the books and listen to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.